Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Debbie Reed, who will discuss Attachment Theory in Action, for which she and Karen served as co-editors. Debbie has 30 years of marketing, strategic planning, and organizational leadership experience. For the past 24 years, she has been with Chaddock, having served as Director of Marketing, Director of Planning and Special Projects, Chief Operating Officer, and now for the last 12 years as President and CEO of the agency that specializes in working with children and their families struggling with trauma and attachment issues. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Well, hello, everyone. I am here with Debbie Reed today for our guest on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Hello, Debbie. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for for talking to me today. Yes. And so, Debbie, you are the co-editor with me um, for our book, Attachment Theory in Action. So I thought we might just briefly talk a little bit about that partnership. But also, just want um, you to share with the group a little bit about your background. Okay, I am uh, have been at, at Chaddock for 23 years in a number of roles uh, throughout my time here and have taken a rather um, unique path to, to get to where we are. Uh, actually started as a director of marketing in the organization and just really connected with the attachment focus and a recognition of how critical that was for families, but also how much that really affects everything we do in work. And so I became a real champion for the organization to really embrace uh, uh, attachment and and, uh, trauma-focused approach. And so through the years as director of planning and special projects chief operating officer and and now leading the organization um, it has been a real privilege to see how this has really undergirded our work and the impact that we've been able to have with families that had been told there was really no hope for their child um, because of this so uh, I sometimes joke that I speak therapist, but I'm not a therapist. Um, but <laughs> I absolutely believe in this work and its application uh, and want to make sure that, that we get the message out to as many people as possible, which is why I was just thrilled to be able to, to work with you in editing this book. Great. Thank you. And so as we worked on this book together, what did you see as your role in the editing process? You said you're not a therapist, but you you believe in this idea. You believe in this model. Um, I have an idea what I thought your role was, but what do you think it was? Well, I, I think the lens that I bring to this, because I am not a, a clinician, uh, and, and this book is really kind of an introduction to folks of a lot of different attachment models. And so I could look at it through the lens of someone who 
is not thoroughly, hasn't studied in school, and it's not what I do for a profession, but to make sure that someone could look at that and really grasp the, the core concepts um, that, that make these models so effective for our kids. Uh, and so whether it is a new clinician or someone, maybe an experienced clinician, but new to some of the different attachment models, um, this is kind of like a sampler platter. All the chapters have entire books written on them. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure that the sampler platter was um, easily digestible for people um, so they could see what they connected with and, and might be able to search out more on a particular model. Yes, I think people from the clinical background, we sometimes get bogged down with details and jargon and, and use acronyms and all of these kinds of things that maybe distance us from a reader who's not as familiar with all of that. So I felt, you know, that was such an important part of what you did that make this understandable for a lot of people, not somebody that's already so entrenched and absorbed in this, but at the same time, have it be in depth enough that it's a value. So, yeah. And I think we really tried to, to achieve that balance um, that, you know, someone who's been doing this work is really going to, I believe, gain some new perspectives from the book. But also, it's not so intimidating for someone newer to, to this field of study that they're going to feel just over their head um, and, and not able to really get a lot of meat out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. Well, hopefully we will have accomplished that goal. Yeah. So, and um, some more about your educational background. You're working on your PhD now and your master's degree, and you've done a lot of um, training on leadership. Um, and can you talk about that a little bit? Because I'd like to talk about where you see the intersection of attachment theory in the arena of leadership. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm a leadership junkie. Um, I have my master's degree um, is in leadership. And, and uh, as you mentioned, I'm currently uh, pursuing my PhD in, in organizational leadership. And for me, as I learned more and more about attachment work, the same concepts are all over leadership books. We just use different vocabulary. I remember a time where uh, I had all of our supervisors did a book study um, on uh, well, several different books. And both times that we did that, I got comments on, this is the same stuff we do with the kids. Exactly. The same concepts that our clinicians are using with kids, I use with all the staff. And so... There, to me, there are so many um, corollaries between the two. It's just that we're looking through a different lens. If you go to the, most clinicians aren't going to spend a lot of time in the business section of the bookstore. Um, however, if they did, and you pull out some of the well-known leadership books, I think they would see a lot that feels familiar. I also think that it's important, and, and one of the things that, that I hope in the chapter I worked on in the book can become clear is 
if you are trying to bring a, a new concept, the, the uh, bringing some attachment-based models into your organization, the same process you go through in helping a child move from point A to point B, you will probably have to help your organization go through in moving from point A to point B. So the translation goes both ways. And I think that um, hopefully might be a little bit of an aha moment to some people. Yeah, so I'm thinking about, you know, you mentioned the book studies that we looked at, and I'm thinking about even the book, The Speed of Trust. Mm -hmm. And, you know, trust is so foundational to attachment theory that we need a safe haven and a, a secure a secure base in order to explore ideas and to grow. Um, and you need that level of trust to, to explore ideas and grow in an organization too, right? Absolutely. And, you know, Stephen Covey isn't writing clinical books, um, and it's Stephen Covey's son, the one that most know, but he's done some, some research on truly high trust um, organizations can move more quickly at a lower cost than low trust organizations. That's one of those transferable concepts you think of what a parent can accomplish with a child when there's a high trust situation in that parent-child dyad and when there's not. Mm -hmm. Same concepts apply to business. And so I think that um, recognizing that Hopefully we'll see, you know, sometimes we're, we're patient with kids as they're trying to get from point A to point B. We're less patient with our colleagues sometimes, but they are really taking the same journey that a child does. Um, a little different context, but the, the core components of that process are the same. So let's talk also a little bit about exploration. So Bowlby told us a child has to have a parent as a secure base and then that allows them to go and explore the world and try new things. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about, you know, in the workplace, innovation, freedom to make decisions, you know, how do, how do you create that secure base so that your people can kind of, you know, self-actualize and move forward in the organization? You know, for us, our secure base is our mission, our vision, and our values. And so we talk about those all the time in the organization. You know, if you don't know what they are, you're not gonna know if you're living them out. And there can be a lot of different paths to get there. Um, and they rarely, things rarely go exactly as you plan. Um, but if staff know what the values are and what the end goal is, um, we set some very clear strategic goals, and I'm not talking 47 of them. I'm mm -hmm. talking like four key areas we're working toward as an organization. If staff know that, then they can make decisions to help move you toward that. If all they know is I'm supposed to, you know, do A, B, C, and follow one, two, three, if those fall apart, they aren't going to be able to make decisions to get you where you need to be. And so, you know, set those um, foundation pieces, set those end goals, and then give your staff the autonomy to try some new things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Chaddock has been around for 164 years. We would not have 
been around that long, if we weren't willing to change and see the challenges before us with new eyes, and so the only way we make it another 164 years is to keep um, trying new things and, and having that be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking too, even when you look at that long history, even though, though we are much more deeply immersed in attachment theory and practices related to that theory, relationships are primary is something that's been said for a very long time at Chaddock. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think about um, even looking at turnover in an organization and the literature says one of the main reasons for people leaving is the supervisory relationship. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's so interesting too, because that's your main relationship in an organization and there has to be trust there and safety. Absolutely. And you know, there, there has to be a rhythm. You know, we, we talk about rhythm in some of the, the clinical work that we do. There has to be a rhythm in, in an organization. And, you know, the way that you go about that starts with the relationship. And so, again, the same concepts, it's just most people don't think of them as, oh, taking this, this concept we're using with a parent-child dyad um and and applying it in an organization but i certainly think our growth and development of an organization demonstrates the power and importance of that as a fundamental building block for everything else that comes mm -hmm. i also think an important aspect of feeling safe is the culture you create in a, a workplace environment what do you have to say about that um you know, Peter Drucker said culture or culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, and I absolutely believe that. The what does he mean by that? That you can have the best plan in the world. Um, but if your culture is not one, if, if there's not trust, if there are not relationships, um, we all, you know, it's easy to think of bureaucracy that just takes new ideas and grinds them to a halt. That's a culture. Um, and mm. it's the unwritten rules of how we do things around here. You know, is the culture very formal? Is the culture informal? Um, you know, I just had a, a staff member walk in my door and ask if I would participate in a goofy activity for, um, a, a celebration we're having soon. She knew what I, that I would say yes before she walked in the door because that's a culture within our organization. Um, you know, there was a, a point in time where our organization had a much more formal culture. And so how you operate as an organization, uh, you need a good plan, but a good plan with a poor culture will never get you there. And mm. a so-so plan with a great culture will get you there. Um, and so I spend a lot of my time really looking at the culture of an organization. Um, and I think because that is harder to quantify, um, that's kind of the soft side of, of leadership. Um, sometimes it gets overlooked. 
Um, it's, it's a hard metric if that's what you're looking for, but it is absolutely critical in moving you forward um, as an organization. You know, because each employee brings their internal working model from their childhood, and then that's overlaid with the internal working model you form in the workplace. You know, how safe is this place? Who can I talk to? Who can I trust? How do I feel about myself in the experience I have in this organization? It's all very interrelated, I think. It, it is, and I think one of the things that, you know, certainly have, uh, I've tried to express in the chapter in the book, and I think that a lot of people don't think about is, um, you know, part of the culture are the systems and processes that are in place. And systems and processes are designed to maintain the status quo. And so if they are doing their job, they are resisting change. And so is there a culture in the organization that recognizes the importance of systems and processes because you have to have those, but also has a mechanism for innovation and change because that's the only way you're going to move forward. And so, you know, in a sense, what is that internal working model of the organization? And how do we recognize that, honor that, and still find a way to try some new things and gain some new experiences um, and address some things that, that the current system is not effectively addressing. Um, and, you know, the same way a clinician gets excited when they're making those kinds of breakthroughs with a client, I get all kinds of excited when I can see that happening in an organization. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about change and in the adult attachment interview, um, there's a coding that we do. It's called can speech. It's like when people talk about something and it's just, you can tell there's no flexibility. Like it's these set ways that they view things and speak about things and talk about things. And in a more um, secure individual, there's a flexibility in their thinking and an ability to even evaluate what you're saying while you're saying it. Um, and so it makes me think about that in terms of um, there has organizations can be very stuck in that like one mindset, not being able to like if we do it here, that's how we do it. We can't evaluate if it should change or be different. Mm -hmm. And I think. You know, part of that is if it's a security, uh, you know, if that's the language to use of we as an organization, it's that culture. We are clear enough and secure enough in what we believe as an organization from a value standpoint that um, it's not about being right or wrong. Is this system like forevermore the right thing to be? Um, it is um, really being able to build on what you've had and done that has brought you to the point that you can consider new options. Um, uh, you've heard me say a lot, we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I absolutely believe that, that 
we can only accomplish new things now because of what we have done previously. But in a lot of organizations, I think there's a sense that when you push to change something, that means that whatever there was before was wrong. Mm. And that's not the issue. That brought you to the point that you can take the next step. And so it was right in that there was a particular journey that approach took you on that gets you to the point that you can now move in a new direction. And I think that um, that's the difference between trying to reach a goal or being concerned with being right. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's a, a... peace in our culture that we have built is always striving to, okay, we've got this one accomplished. Now, how do we tackle this challenge that hasn't been um, addressed before? And you're not going to tackle a new challenge by using an old process or system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we talk about, um, a fear coming out of a fear base based on your own history, or are we talking trauma literature about working in back brain and becoming more rigid in your thinking? You know, so many times the, the defensiveness and the rigidity and the fear come up against organizations when they try to change, um, just as they do in personal relationships that we're trying to change. You know, how can organizations manage that? Because a lot of them don't, and then they just stay pretty stagnant because there's that push to keep things the same. There's that change back reaction when you're trying to get a change that we talk about in family systems theory. If you change, you're going to get pushed back to stay the way you were. How, I mean, Shadok has been through a lot of different changes and um, periods of of innovation. How do you handle that as a lead leader when people are all scared and they're getting defensive and they're not trusting and everything feels so uncertain? You know, I think you have to guide them there. And, you know, it's interesting because the business literature on, as you talk about the change back and everything, you know, that's a, a Lewin's change theory in the business model, which is um, unfreeze, change, refreeze. And so when you're trying to make a change, you're telling people to unfreeze. And then there's this big gray uncertainty in the middle before they get to where they want to be. And I think people want to do a good job. And they knew how to do a good job in the way it was before. Yes. And yes. when they're in the middle. Competent. <laughs> absolutely. And so when they're in that middle, they don't know how to do a good job. The way that you guide them through that gray uh, desert in the middle is lots and lots of communications. You have to over, uh, John Cotter says over communicate by a a factor of 10. Um, Because if you're the leader, you feel like I've already told them this five times. Well, you might have said it five times, but you might have been talking to five different groups. Mm -hmm. Or you think they've already heard this, they're getting tired of hearing it, they don't need to hear it again. Well, their mind might have been on something else, or they were distracted, or they didn't quite get it the first time. And I think so often in the midst of change, we under communicate with people 
or, and again, this is the, the corollaries with our kids, we try to take too big of a step. And staff don't know in, you know, we think they know how to get from A to B, but we haven't really broken it down or we haven't asked their opinion enough because I might not realize three other factors that they have to deal with to get from point A to point B. And if I don't listen to them to hear where the challenges are, you know, if I know those things, I can help them adapt. If I don't know because I haven't asked and I haven't listened, um, and not listening to give my response, but listening to hear what they're really saying, uh, then that path is going to be a lot harder. So, you know, it's, it is a fallacy to think that a leader has to have all the answers. Um, a leader has to help its organization find the answers and get to the path. But I mean, heaven help us if I'm the smartest person in the room, you know, <laughs> you really have to understand what people's experiences are with the change process so we can help them maneuver through it. I like what you're saying about the high levels of communication, because if something's not communicated, it's human nature to make it up, right? Like we'll, 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 we'll find some narrative about what's happening. It may not be the most productive one. <laughs> Absolutely. People fill in the blanks. Right. And it's because of their need to, to have something to ground their, their thoughts and their actions in. Uh, and so we need to fill in the blanks or ask them their thoughts. Um, you know, several change initiatives. I found out like two years later that someone thought a particular thing that was not at all the case, but I, you know, no one had particularly asked that person that question to find it out. Uh, and so, but again, I think there's this sense of, and it's the rigidity of, you know, people being right, having it figured out that to, it can be scary for a leader and for, for, for people following that person to think that they, they really don't have the answers. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. One way that we have done it that has been very effective is to get the framework of an idea um, and then pilot it. And here's why that's important. If I roll out a finished plan, then if staff critique it or criticize it or say it, they're telling me I'm wrong, that takes a lot of confidence to tell a leader they're wrong in an organization. If I roll it out and say, now this is a pilot, we know there's gonna be changes and to really get it to where it needs to be, I need your help in, in working out the final details. Then instead of causing a problem, they're actually helping us get to the best solution. And mm -hmm. so that encourages people's feedback rather than, than put a barrier in place that they're going to be telling the higher ups that they're wrong if they point out a flaw in, in the, the change initiative. Mm -hmm. So just that 
And in a lot of ways, it's semantics, because a lot of people that roll out the plan think that it'll have to change and adapt as you go. Mm -hmm. But if you really frame it in that, okay, this is, this is the basic framework. We're, we need your help to fill in the details. That really engages and helps people be part of the solution rather than feeling like they're creating a problem by raising their hand and, and pointing out um, some really vital pieces of information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it feels like the stakes are lower to to say something if it's a pilot or something like that then you know this is the way it is and um yeah so i know that we're running out of time um but i it's been so good to talk with you about this debbie and um and it's you know, because of your understanding of this, that we've been able to be so innovative and bring in so many ideas at Chaddock um, and have them, you know, work through. Do you think there's anything you'd want to say to to other like program people or supervisors or even a CEO who could listen to this? Any takeaway thoughts? You know, I think recognizing that the change is a process, you know, there have been so many times where we trained people in a model or something that they left the training so excited about. And then they got to their organization and felt like they just hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. I think that recognition that, you know, if a leader sent you to a, a training, they want that information. But it's that taking that extra step and recognizing that the role of the system is to maintain status quo. So how can we make adaptations to really maximize our learning and incorporate it into the organization? I think the more that organizations can do that, I think they will be amazed at the energy um, and the impact that they can get um, from the very same effort. That's great. Thank you so much, Debbie. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today and, and share all of your insights. It's just really helpful and really exciting to hear how these ideas can apply in so many different settings. So. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.